Hey, what's up, everybody? Let's talk sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helly is super excited to welcome Domino's Hawaii aboard as the title sponsor of the podcast. Speaking on behalf of Domino's Hawaii, we want to thank our entire team for their efforts in staying safe, keeping sanitized, and working hard to serve you, our neighbors, during these trying times. As a locally owned company, we know there are people looking for work, and Domino's Hawaii is hiring as many in our community as we can right now. We want to thank you, the customers, for your continued trust. And until this quarantine ends, Domino's Hawaii is offering free delivery to help keep everyone safe and at home. We're all in this together, so take care out there, and we look forward to the next big sporting event where we can all gather and celebrate as one. All right, let's talk sports. All right, welcome to another edition of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helly, presented by Domino's Hawaii. Uh, so we are posting this episode on May Day, which of course in Hawaii is of particular special uh, value because it is Lay Day. It is a statewide celebration of the Aloha Spirit. Uh, we are recording this episode though on April 30th, so um, we are pulling back the curtains a little bit on that one. But uh, in the spirit of May Day, Jordan. Real quick, your top three traditional Hawaiian songs. Yeah, this was this was tough, man. You you only gave me three, so I cheated, of course. Uh, but I I've, I've got to throw in. Uh, there's just so many out there, right? I, I got to throw in. Uh, I kind of bounced around some of the decades, but I, I'll go a little more contemporary with some Hawaiian style band, a little Nokiano Ahi Ahi, mm. which is uh, a timeless classic. Uh, and then so many of these are, are made by multiple artists, right, over the course of, of time. Uh, I went to Kaka Falls. I went the Nathan Avial version, uh, which I feel like is always good. Uh, I went Mele Ohana of the Kaylee Reichel variety, uh, the Maui guy that he is. Uh, and uh, I kind of had to pare down my Kaylee Reichel um, list of songs. So I, I, those were my three. I am partial to Pualilehua as well, um, whether it's the inter- instrumental Beamer Brothers version or the Hui Ohana with like the Ka'apana Brothers and Dennis Paval. So I'll, I'll go with those. I know that's, I think, like four or five at this point. Yeah. And then I got to give an honorable mention to the Lahaina Luna alma mater. Oh, okay. Interesting. That's a, that's a different kind of take on it, but I can appreciate that. Yeah, you uh, basically broke all the rules of the top three. You went top five or six there. Uh, but what's funny is I got a Nathan Avial song on my hey. Now, my top three, it's always a fluid situation. At any given time, depending on the mood, depending on the time of year or day or whatever, uh, I may have a different composition in my top three. But as it currently stands, it is Nathan Avial, Mahina Hina. Ooh. I have, yes, a Kelly Reichel song, but mine is Ipo Le Momi. Mm-hmm. And I also have Josh Tatofi, pretty new to the Kanoa top three here in recent years, Pua Kiele, which is uh, an amazing song. Uh, and Josh Tatofi is an amazingly talented singer. So uh, there's my top three. And I think I have about 8,000 that would qualify for my honorable <laughs> mention list. Yes, without a doubt. I will just mention that Josh Tatofi is a Baldwin High School graduate. There you go. There you go. Yeah, Maui representing here on these two lists. Well, let's get into the warm-up, man, because you are a card-carrying Chicago Bears fan, Jordan. Uh, and so you got to be pretty excited. You got a former University of Hawaii receiver, Trevor Davis, who just signed a free agent deal with the Bears, finished his college career at Cal, but now has played four years in the NFL, has played in 43 games, four starts among those uh, in seasons with the Packers, Raiders, and Dolphins. Uh, also a specialist as a punt and kick returner. So your thoughts on the Bears uh, getting Trevor Davis to come into the fold? Excited. Uh, anytime you get a former bowl in the pros, it's fun. He's already established himself, right? Four years already in the league. I think he's kind of stuck at this point, which is great to see. Obviously, more of his resume at this point is centered on the return game. I think that's where he's made his mark. No doubt about that, particularly in his years with the Green Bay Packers, where we got to see him up close and personal as fans of other NFC North Rands, if you will, uh, that can't quite keep pace with the, the other two in the division. But I, I think for Trevor Davis, it's a, it's a great landing spot because the Bears, even though they are pretty set, you would imagine, at returner, uh, especially with Cordero Patterson, obviously the guy was all decade team 
uh, when it came to kickoff returns. He's still on the roster, and I'd imagine he's still very much going to be a viable option there. Tariq Cohen has been the punt returner his first couple of years in the league, but he's also running back, slot receiver. They use him all over the field, so maybe they want to dial that back a little bit. So I'd imagine Trevor Davis is going to compete there. But really, right, if, if you're a guy in the league, you want to make the team as a receiver, get on the field on offense. And I really think he's got a shot because they've got Allen Robinson, who to me is a legit top receiver in this league. He just hasn't had a lot of good quarterbacks to throw him the ball, uh, whether it was back in Jacksonville or whether it's been in Chicago with Mitchell Trubisky. Heck, he turned Christian Hackenberg into a big-time prospect when he was catching balls from him at Penn State. I mean, but, but everybody other than that is Anthony Miller's kind of their high draft pick from a couple of years ago. He's been riddled with injuries. Then you got the likes of Javon Wims, Riley Ridley, Darnell Mooney. And if you're thinking, who are those guys? That's the point. They don't have anybody else. The heck, they signed Ted Ginn today. Ted Ginn Jr., who's 97 years old, I think. Apparently still out there. Uh, running fast, but I don't know how much he's bringing to the offense. They've got the 10 tight end. My point is the pass-catching department for the Bears there ain't a lot of quality. There's a lot of depth, but there's not a lot of quality after Allen Robinson. I think Trevor Davis got a good shot as any of those guys I rattled off at making this team as a legit rotation receiver. Yeah, he's bounced around a little bit, but getting past that all-important four-season mark, right, that's so important mm-hmm. when it comes to tenure, maybe this will be a, a more comfortable environment for him. Maybe he can find uh, and carve out a little bit more of a role here with the Bears. So very exciting stuff here. Uh, for Chicago. All right, you're the Bears fan, so if you had to put money on it, who's the starting quarterback week one, if and when there is a week one? I I still think it's Nick Foles. I think it's Nick Foles. His familiarity with Matt Nagy from their time at previous stops, they brought him in. They they traded some draft capital to go and get Nick Foles pretty early on instead of really waiting to see what the quarterback market was going to pay out to be. They probably could have got somebody else for cheaper, uh, but Nick Foles is the guy they wanted, and, and clearly they are looking to shake things up. Uh, you don't go out and get a guy like that unless you're planning on playing in week one. So even though he's coming into a new team, I think his familiarity with Nagy and the offense isn't going to be a hindrance with the truncated offseason, I, I think, is Nick Foles. All right. Well, we want to remind anybody that if uh, you feel so inclined, you can hit us up on Twitter with any questions, comments, any suggestions for show topics at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or our new show-specific account, Talk Sports. 808. So please feel free to hit us up there. Time to get into our game time portion of the show. And today, the latest news affected an event that uh, really has been impacted by Hawaii teams. And there has been an enriched history of success from Hawaii teams involved with this event. And that is the Little League World Series. Obviously, it becomes more of a generic conversation when you lament the fact that this sporting event that a lot of people were looking forward to that sparks and stimulates all kinds of across the board participation, particularly from local athletes. Uh, It becomes repetitive as far as expressing your sorrow that yet another event had to be postponed or canceled. Uh, But put some thoughts to this, because again, as mentioned, this is an event on a national scale that has had a very traditional history of success from Hawaii teams. Yeah, I think just from a, an event standpoint, right, the Little League World Series is such a romanticized event. And sure, it's become big money business. It's become a highly televised and publicized event, no doubt about it. But I think when it comes to youth sports in this country, the Little League World Series is the pinnacle. Like there, there's nothing else that compares to it in terms of magnitude, in terms of coverage, uh, in terms of prestige. And to have that go away, right? And for every 12-year-old currently in the United States and around the world that takes part of Little League International, like they, they won't have that opportunity. And I think, you know, yeah, we got rid of March Madness. Yeah, we, we could see the postponement or cancellation of some professional leagues or something like that. But you're telling me like 12-year-old kids are not going to get that opportunity. That's as heartbreaking as it gets, I think. Um, and then for us in Hawaii, right? We've been pretty good at this thing. Heck, the, the Central East Maui Little Leaguers from right here on the Valley Isle a year ago made it all the way to the United States Championship game before bowing out to finish fourth overall in the world, Honolulu Little League winning it the year before. We've seen some teams in the past, really, this millennium in particular, the, the state of Hawaii has been really good at that age group. And, and so I'd imagine whatever 12-year-old team was on its way to go win the state tournament this year uh, would have had some high hopes to, to get to Williamsport and go make some noise. So 
yeah, it's just heartbreaking, right? All these events, whether you're talking about high school seniors, college seniors, uh, heart-wrenching event, but the, the prestige, right? It doesn't get bigger in youth sports. And uh, I think we all knew this was coming, um, but it doesn't make it hurt any less. Yeah, leave it to, to Sage Gerald Oda, right, I, who I think captured the hearts and minds of, of so many millions across the country and beyond when, when his Honolulu Little League team went and, and won the whole thing a couple of years ago, to put it in perspective. This whole experience is forcing children in all corners of the country and the world to grow up really fast. And, and I thought that was an interesting take on it because sports is designed, especially at the youth level, to just kind of teach overall life lessons, right? And sometimes more importantly than learning the lessons of how to cope with success is the lessons that are attached to coping with failure, right? And those are lessons in, in teamwork and camaraderie. Those are things that you can take with you really for the rest of your life. Uh, and so I thought that was an interesting take because this is a whole other kind of lesson, right? Of the inability to even compete. And so how do you process that? How do you come to grips with that? Uh, how do you apply closure uh, for a kid who was maybe looking forward to an opportunity to play summer baseball throughout and maybe play on that big stage. Uh, and so I think that is actually an accurate take by Gerald Oda, who would know as well as anybody, right, uh, what these kids and what these coaches and extended families go through. Uh, it, it's so true, right, for, for these youngsters. They're so used to structure in a lot of ways, right? They're used to going to school. They're used to doing homework. They're used to going to practice and have all of those things outlined. And, and then you take that and, and you flip it on its head, right? They're, they're having to practice on their own at home. They're having to show a lot of self-discipline and, and go through schooling at home. Uh, and, and then with a lot of those carrots, if you will, a lot of those rewards that usually come with the hard work and self-discipline kind of removed, right? And, and they get to see a lot of those realities. A lot of their families are going through hardship economically and elsewise. So yeah, I mean, this... This generation of kids, you know, not just the 12, 11, 12-year-olds 12 that would have been eligible to go play in Williamsport, but a lot of these youngsters getting a, getting a sobering taste of, of reality in, in some tough times. And, and yeah, I think they're, they're having to grow up a little too quick, but uh, I think Coach Oda put that in a, a very well-put terms and very well-put terms for us to understand. Yeah, we do have a little bit of good news because it has been announced here in the last 24 hours that golf courses in various areas across the state, including here on Maui, where we record this podcast, will be reopened. Uh, it will be on a limited and conditional basis, but next week will also mark the conditional reopening of beaches and some parks and beach parks. Do you agree with this decision and sort of the order of this, what you would imagine will continue to be an incremental reopening of life as we know it? Yeah, I do. I do agree with it. I think you've heard from a lot of the public officials, a lot of the government officials, that there very much is a sliding scale, right, of, of risk associated with the reopening of different activities, whether they're indoor, outdoor, large gatherings, small gatherings. There, there is a bit of a scientific process to this in understanding what makes sense to slowly start easing into this thing. And obviously, outdoor activities, uh, I think, fall in that category of easy to maintain social distancing when you talk about exercising in outdoor parks, right? They're not allowing team competitions. You can't go to the park and go play pickup basketball. You can't go down to the park and play pickup soccer or something like that. Uh, so th they are still limiting it that sense, but they're allowing people to get outside of their homes. They're allowing people to at least get some exercise, get some, get some sun. Obviously beach access is huge here in our state in, in just how many people depend on that for, for sustenance, whether it's fishing for exercise, whether it's water sports, these are big things for sure. And then obviously a lot of the folks, particularly in our line, right on the sports side, uh, golf courses, it's a big deal. Uh, you, you've got a lot of people here, not just visitors, but obviously the, the resident public who golf a lot. I mean, it's, it's a great climate. We've got great courses here. Uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense. You can, you can really do a lot to maintain all of the stringent standards we have put in, whether you're visiting the grocery store uh, or some other establishment out in the public, or, you know, one person per cart, um, you know, limiting the use of rakes and sand traps. I'm all, all for that because then you can just take your ball out and, and maybe place it outside the sand trap. We can keep going. We talked to Mark Rolfing a few weeks ago, right, in talking about some of the measures the USGA has put forth to indeed keep the game going while understanding the current climate we live in during COVID-19. So I think it's great. I, I really do. I think it's a good first step. Uh, we can see how it goes uh, in these environments, and 
And I know people were raring to golf. I know folks in the golf industry who were saying, hey, multiple courses. As soon as the mayor made the announcement yesterday, phones were ringing. People were looking to make reservations within minutes after the official government announcement came down. So people are itching to get back, swing gloves a little bit. Yeah, I think that's what differentiates golf courses, which, you know, this, this whole stigma of being an essential business is up for debate. And you will have a lot of people who maybe aren't as enthusiastic about getting out on the golf course, who maybe aren't inclined to take advantage of going out into the ocean and surfing or participating in water sports and exercise of that nature. Uh, but I do think that golf falls in the category of something that can be done that helps and benefits not just physical, but also mental well-being. And that's part of this. People are experiencing anguish on so many levels. And that affects not just the physical health, but very much the mental health. And so I think while there will be some people that may be upset or would maybe like to see other forms of businesses also be prioritized in the same way as some of these uh, golf courses, uh, I do think that golf itself as an activity does fit that category. And, and, and this is just how it's going to be. The reality of this is the businesses that will allow you to maintain standards of social distancing and some of those other precautions, those are the ones that are going to be more likely looked upon as early candidates for reopening. And then we'll just kind of slowly, incrementally work from there. But I can understand, you know, some people out there uh, who are yearning to get to the barbershop or yearning to get to the hair salon or, or some of the other types of businesses. I can understand how their patience continues to be tested here. But unfortunately, I think that is just the reality of this situation. But with the even limited reopening of golf courses, is this a hint towards uh, the idea that maybe we're closing in on a possible reestablishing of sports? Now, there are a lot of things that are riding on that. And we'll talk about it at the prep level, for instance, because uh, it would not be a good look for prep sports to start up if students aren't yet allowed on campus and back into classrooms. So if you're already to the point where you are okay with once again welcoming students back into the classroom atmosphere and environment, then I think that that changes the discussion about what kinds of sports competitions are then possible. That said, uh, you actually had an interesting conversation with HHSAA Executive Director Chris Chun as part of the Stream Team series, and we'll play a clip from that because he basically talks about some of the contingency planning that's going into this potential upcoming athletic year and some of the challenges, particularly with the flagship sport that is football. Let's play some of that. Are there certain benchmarks that need to be met for us to return to high school sports and competition. And what do you envision that looking like once we actually get back to the field of play? Yeah, so it might have a lot of changes, especially for this next year until, until a lot of the health concerns are, are um, allayed. Um, so we, of course, we're gonna have to align with the county and governor orders. We're gonna have to make sure the schools are open. Um, so it might, it might be, it might be a lot of changing around. So we have we have meetings scheduled up with all the leagues. We're still going to meet. Um, we have to start planning, but it, it might look drastically different. Like like sports, like the, if you notice the spring sports, they're more um, they're more fitting to be played in the fall with this kind of setup. Especially if you have to have social distancing and stuff set up like that. Like sports like golf, tennis, baseball, softball. These are less contact sports and. These can go in the fall when normally they play in the spring. And that actually might be a good idea because these are the kids that miss their spring season too. Um, th that being said, some other sports are tougher like football. I mean, that's all contact. And so I think we're, follow we're, we're, we're monitoring what the NCAA is doing. We're monitoring what the NFL is doing. Um, but there are issues. And um, just so you guys know, like the helmet reconditioning, that's a big issue. Um, all the warehouses in Mexico are closed. That's where everyone reconditions their football helmets. So football helmets might not come back in time to start where we normally start in July. Um, that's when practices start. And they're saying that the earliest it'll come back in August. And that's before all the delays because even the NCA 2A, the NCAA, their helmets are off at the same place too. And I think they have priority over us and they send theirs normally after spring practices. So there's, there's a lot of concerns. I mean, it's going to be tough and hopefully we can get, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful we can get every state tournament in, but there's going to be obstacles and barriers along the way for every season. 
All right, so that was just a little snippet of Executive Director of the HHSAA, Chris Chun, and his conversation with my man Jordan Helly as part of the stream team. Uh, you can catch that entire interview on OC16.tv or the OC16 accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But Jordan, your reaction to what he had to say, because it was somewhat eye-opening, particularly with some of the obstacles at hand regarding what is such a massive undertaking that is prep football. Yeah, I think it's a little peek into the logistical challenge that comes with putting on some of these sports once we do get the clearance to go ahead and, and start formulating really a an action plan to, to get these sports back into it. And obviously with football, right, and something I think a lot of people overlook is the certification and refurbishment of equipment, especially helmets. Uh, and, and if that's pushed back a bit, especially when you figure every single team in the country, whether you're playing high school football, whether you're playing collegiate football, if you've got to go send them to the same plants, you know, in, in this case in Mexico, that's, that's a long line to be in wherever you are in line. And so that could really push things back for football to get back on the field. And then obviously interesting, uh, and I thought Chris was, was really forthcoming, and I give him and, and the people under him a lot of credit for thinking outside the box when it's coming to – the spring sports, right? As he pointed out, that sort of lend itself to being a little more socially distant when playing tennis, golf, the diamond sports, um, and, and looking at moving them to the fall to basically give themselves as big a buffer as possible to get all of these sports in. When you think about it, right? It makes a ton of sense. Instead of waiting to the spring to try and play those seasons, you never know what's going to happen. I think we've learned that this year. You know, there could be a recurrence. Heck, something else could happen. Uh, it makes sense. Try and get those in as early in the season as possible. And if you have to push back, that's fine. But it doesn't make sense to to hold those sports into a shorter window than some of the fall sports, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna be able to push back football, if you're gonna be able to push back, you know, bowling or something in the fall, uh, you might as well give that same luxury and same margin for error, if you will, to the spring sports as well. So I give them a lot of credit. Kudos to them on some outside-the-box thinking. Yeah, we'll just keep our fingers crossed. This is an ever-changing, very fluid situation. But uh, Chris Chun seems to be thinking about not just the first contingency plan, but second, third, and fourth. <laughs> All right, it's time for the Domino's Hawaii main topping. This is our main discussion topic here for this episode of the podcast. Uh, we thank our title sponsor, Domino's Hawaii. So we get into the discussion of college sports. And again, it is a big question mark as to if and when we're going to be able to restart college sports as we once knew it, what that will look like. Uh, but there are some headlines coming out of the collegiate landscape. And uh, this is a time when the NCAA's top governing body said this week that it supports a proposal to allow college athletes to sign endorsement contracts and receive payment for other work, provided the schools they attend aren't involved in any of said payments. This is quite the 180 as far as the stance that the NCAA is taking. It was not but, what, just October of last year when the NCAA, in response to the California vote, which was basically the play-to-pay bill that would, in very much the same way, allow athletes to make money off of their image and likeness, sort of on the side, like you see with Olympic athletes uh, in the United States. The NCAA said that basically that would ruin everything and amateurism is out the window and, and college sports becomes a professional business. But here they are just months later taking a different stance here, Jordan. What does this represent to you? I, I think for the NCAA, right? They, I, I wouldn't give them credit for willingly coming to the table and, and willingly adapting to the times. Their hand is kind of forced, right? When you look at it, I think it's somewhere north of 30 different states have at least introduced, if not enacted, legislation very similar to what California has done. And so the NCAA, I think, could see proverbially the walls closing in. Like, they, they, they needed to adapt. And so I, I don't give them a ton of credit, but uh, we'll see exactly what the proposal is once we figure this thing out because it was inevitable. They've got to figure something out. And I do think it is a nice middle ground between just straight out giving these players a salary and keeping the status quo, allowing the market to dictate exactly how, how these players can – can maybe be compensated for their name, image, and likeness. And so I think it's a great first step. I think there are a ton of hurdles and, and potential potholes to navigate through, no doubt about it. Uh, but I do think it's better than the existing system because the, these players who bring in tons of money and revenue 
for these institutions who are the reason that so many of these high-profile coaches are making big-time dollars deserve a little slice of the pie. And I do think there are guardrails necessary, right? That was the Mark Emmert hot-button word uh, just yesterday when it came to the NCAA really sort of explaining what they were putting forth. And, and I get it. We need, to, we need to do everything to keep this above board. And there will be issues when it comes to, hey, how do you make sure that boosters aren't just funneling through sham employment or something like that, you know, and giving them all kinds of money. My thing is that stuff already happens. We've got an entire FBI investigation into the bag guy when it comes to college basketball. Why not bring this all to the surface? Why not give everybody an equal opportunity? Why not give the University of Hawaii an opportunity, not necessarily the school, but the community here to, to help endorse these athletes in the same level that Oklahoma and Texas and, and Ohio State can do? And maybe by bringing it above board, we'll, we'll be able to kind of monitor and really regulate it a bit better. Yeah, I mean, the enforcement, the, the watchdog provisions, if you will, of all of this activity will remain relatively the same, right? I mean, it will still be the NCAA overseeing to make sure that this thing is executed properly. And obviously, there are a lot of details. The devil is in the details, certainly. And there are a lot of details that are going to have to be mapped out here uh, to precisely display and structure exactly what this thing is going to look like. Uh, but I do think that you touched on an important point, uh, because one of the biggest questions in response to or an argument against this kind of added compensation for student athletes potentially is how do you differentiate paying the quarterback or, or the guy who is the face of your football program? How, how do you differentiate paying him extra money versus someone that's on the swimming team or the guy who is the third string left tackle or something like that? And I think you touched on it. The market will bear that out because it will be very much based on their celebrity status. And naturally, players who play certain positions are going to get more attention uh, and the market will represent that. Uh, will that always be fair? Not necessarily. Is the market always fair? Not necessarily. But I get it. Change is difficult. And people love their college sports. And they love the idea of these student athletes who are representing not the name on the back of their jersey, but the name on their front of their jersey, passionate fan base that supports them. I understand that. And nobody wants to see that fractured. But I just think it becomes harder and harder as time goes on to justify not presenting a pathway for greater compensation for the labor force, the workforce of this multi-billion dollar industry where you have amateurism in a cocoon-like uh, wrapping of capitalism, right? Where everybody on the periphery can benefit and, and can profit. Uh, but the workforce, the labor force, that profit is minimal. And, and I'm not trying to uh, say that uh, scholarships and, and, and an opportunity at higher education is something to be scoffed at. Uh, but I think we understand when you're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, the driving force of that, I think that deserves a level of acknowledgement and compensation. Uh, what it will look like, we don't yet know. And Super Agent Lee Steinberg presented a legitimate concern where he says he foresees potential issues for agents, athletes, and universities when he says mutually beneficial opportunities converge. Basically, he's saying, look out for the relationship between those entities. And you're right. How'd you like to be a college coach and you're bringing in a recruit who's also bringing in representation? Like he's got an, an agent or something like that. That will introduce a lot of complexities that weren't previously there, but that comes every time you introduce any form of significant change. Without a doubt. And will it be seamless right off the get-go? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think we're, we're fooling ourselves if we think that. But it has to start someplace. We, we, we need to, to get the ball rolling. I think adjustments can be made in the same way that the NCAA, when it came to eligibility rules, when it came to um, you know compensation in the old form, whether it was room, board, things of that nature, it, it's not the same as it was in 1965. Like all those rules evolved. All those things change. So I don't think we have to get it 100% right in 2021 when, when, when hopefully this thing gets going. Like, I think they, they can come up with as best the plan as they foresee, and there will be unforeseen circumstances, and then they adjust. That's the process that they've built. That's the structure that exists, and I, I don't think there's any problem with that um, in, in correcting some of the things that could pop up as we move along throughout the next decade or so. 
Well, if you're not in favor of change, I have bad news for you because the NCAA could be instituting more significant rule changes soon. In fact, they're expected to vote on May 20th for the adoption of the one-time transfer rule. This would dictate that an athlete would be allowed one transfer to another institution in their collegiate career without penalty, meaning they wouldn't have to serve that redshirt year as a transfer. Uh, do you think the adoption of this rule is a good thing for college sports? Yeah, I do think so. I think it's another instance of, look, there's so many transfers now, just the, the sheer number in a bunch of different venues. Some of them are sitting out a year due to the transfer rule, but that, that's not stopping a ton of kids. It maybe causes them to think a little bit. You do have to weigh your options, but there are a lot of student athletes who transfer and play right away. I love the grad transfer exception. I think it is a brilliant piece of legislation by the NCAA because it rewards kids for getting their degree. There's the hardship waiver. There, there's so many loopholes, right? There are so many exceptions when it comes to it. And so when you, when you get down to it, to me, it just makes so much more sense to get rid of all those loopholes, get rid of all those exceptions, just make it blanket across the league or across college, collegiate athletics where you're looking at it and, and you say, hey, everybody gets a one-time transfer. And then after that, it's, it's back to the old rules, right? You got to sit out, you got to do whatever. Maybe the grad transfer rule still applies, uh, which I would love to see it do. But it, so much of this takes place anyway. If a coach can move programs and, and leave without any repercussion, and I get there's some buyouts and some contractual things here or there, but they can leave and go coach the very next year at a brand new institution. And the kids who played under him can't do the same. That doesn't make any sense at all any sense at all. And, and I think I'm all for giving these student athletes a little more power, a little more agency in deciding these things. And again, after a, a, a transition period, it'll be normal, just the same way that, that all the transfer they go on now via loopholes and elsewise, it is the new normal anyway. Yeah, I can understand coaches not loving this idea because it makes their job a lot harder, right? They're going to have to basically be constantly re-recruiting players that are already in their program, players that maybe weren't heavily recruited initially. Then they all of a sudden play on a larger stage, get a little more attention, and opportunities may potentially present themselves. So I understand that. I can understand the concern on the part of someone like Dick Vitale, who basically described this rule as something that will introduce chaos, was the word that he used, to college basketball. He's saying, hey, look, when you're talking about coaches being able to move around freely, you're talking 50 to 55 coaches per year. In this instance, this will likely lead to, this is what Dick Vitale said, uh, maybe one to 2,000 transfers at any given time in any given year in college basketball. And, and I get that. The numbers are actually approaching that already again to me it just becomes more of a principle it becomes more of an argument of how can we justify the incongruency of coaches that have the freedom who already get paid far more than what the student athletes could possibly imagine at the moment maybe that will change here uh, but who already have all of the benefits all of the benefit of profit uh, that already have all of the power all of the authority how do we reconcile the fact that they have the latitude to switch jobs at the drop of a hat, uh, even after they have made promises to incoming recruits and student athletes, and the student athletes themselves don't have that latitude? I think it's just generally a, a, a principled debate and concern. Who, though, will be impacted the most? Is this a rule that is likely to threaten mid-major programs on a more frequent and regular basis as compared to the Power Five programs? Could we see movement both ways, potentially, as this thing evolves? I really think it can be a both ways type of thing. I, I, look, guys like a Drew Bugs, you know, here at the University of Hawaii may seek opportunities elsewhere, just as he did uh, on his way to Missouri. But I do think there are going to be a lot of players at Power Five conferences who don't crack the depth chart who were sitting on the end of the bench, who were thinking that, hey, they were going to be a big-time contributor at their programs after being a pretty big-time recruit, who are going to look to go elsewhere. I think there are as many of those guys as there are top-level mid-major players who are going to want to try their hand at a Power 5 conference. I, I, I do, th And maybe it'll be 60-40 or something like that. Maybe the flow will be a little more advantageous for the power five, but those guys are transferring now, right? There are so many grad transfers, like the grad transfer market in college basketball. It's almost like signing day. The number of grad transfers who, who go ahead and sign with power five programs in, in like Kentucky and Duke and some of these big blue bloods are, are getting these guys. That's happening anyway. 
That's happening anyway. Uh, but the one-time transfer, heck, if you don't have to sit out a year, the guy who's, you know, the eighth man at said SEC school, he may be looking to go someplace else to, to get a little more playing time, to be the man someplace else. And uh, I think if you're a power five or, excuse me, a mid-major program, you got to be ready to take those guys in and ready to open the door for those guys willing to go and change schools as well. I mean, how many students go to college, whether they are on scholarship or not, and their experience isn't what they were hoping for or isn't what they were expecting? Uh, you have, in so many instances, we know this being island guys, you have so many instances of people that go away to the mainland, to the continent for college, uh, and they get homesick. It's not what they anticipated. It's a little bit bigger than what they could have imagined. And so they develop a desire to come home, to make a change. And I think that that is every college student's right, or at least it should be. And, and I think even if you are a scholarship athlete, it shouldn't necessarily prevent you from having that kind of freedom, at least once, at least once in your career, which is what this NCAA rule would essentially dictate. Uh, all right, so um, we have really been milking our moonlighting gig here because uh, you are the perfect segue guy, Jordan. You talked about Drew Bugs and his transferring to Missouri. Uh, well, I had a chance on the Stream Team series to talk with Aran Ganat, the head coach for the UH men's basketball team. And we get into the incoming recruiting class as well as dealing with the departure of Drew Bugs uh, and a couple of other tidbits. Let's play that clip uh, from Aran Ganat. Let's talk about those four guys coming in, because this is a class that it sounds like by all descriptions and certainly by some of the comments from you and the rest of the coaching staff, this is a group to be excited about. There will be some player development that will be required, obviously, with freshmen coming in. But your thoughts on this group? I think we're really excited. I think you could probably tell when we finally had the opportunity to talk about them, to, to share with the world a little bit more about why we're so uh, pumped up about this class. I think. As a whole, it's a very dynamic group. It's an aggressive group. It's an athletic group. Um, it's a talented group. And obviously, they fill the, the, you know, the soul test in terms of being everything that we want to be about. So, uh, you know, you want to check boxes when you bring in some guys every year. Uh, you'll lose some guys to graduation. We haven't been hurt that much over the years in the transfer market, guys leaving us. Drew was the first guy who played over 16 minutes a game that we've lost to the transfer. Uh, portal, whereas that's happening quite a bit everywhere. So, um, you know, we talk about uh, guard play, um, you know, starting with Javon McClanahan. He was a, a, a junior college kid who has three years, so we're really excited about that. A really good kid, really good student, and accomplished. He, you know, he filled the stat sheet, kind of like Drew in a way, but more as a scorer, more as a shooter, uh, getting six rebounds and six assists as, at his size, a great leader. And so point guard play is huge. And then you had Bawali Bales, who had similar numbers at the under 20s. Mind you, he just turned, he was 17 at the time over in Australia when this event happened. And he went 27 and seven. Um, and very aggressive, very dynamic, very exciting uh, player. So both those guys are going to be battling. I mean, I think the big thing with the guys we're coming, we have coming in, the guys we have coming back, they're going to be some absolute battles. In practice, you shift from the guard position, you bring in a guy like Manel um, from the junior college level as well. He's just coming into his own. And, and he and Javon played in a really good region at the junior college level, and he was player of the year in that region. He gives you a, 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 a perimeter guy at the four spot who can play inside and out and who's going to keep getting better. And he's been coming on. So, And then the first guy who's kind of the most underrated guy in the class was uh, Beyond Riley. Uh, because it was so long ago, he, he was our early commit. But at six, five and a half, six, six, and two thirty-five, he's a force. Um, so we're really excited, and he's a guy who can, you know, make plays. And he's got some point guard in him. He's not necessarily a point guard, but he can, you know, when we play the way we do with our four spot, uh, he creates some issues and mis mismatches. And so, as a whole, it's a very versatile group. You mentioned Drew Bugs, and he decided to test the waters via the transfer portal, and he ultimately decided to transfer to Missouri. It was ironic. Dawson Carper, uh, who did not nearly play as many minutes per game uh, as Drew Bugs, he ends up going to Missouri State. Uh, you also have Josiah Villa, who is transferring to Chaminade. But in the case of Drew Bugs, a guy who is the career record holder in assists, what is the feeling on that from the coaching staff's perspective? Was this a situation of, hey, 
thanks for what you've done, and we wish you the very best in this new endeavor. Are there any uh, hurt feelings by his desire to depart? No, I think we do a really good job on the front end, during and on the back end of making sure everybody's on good terms. And uh, Drew has, uh, I love Drew, we love Drew, and he's, this is a home for him for life. And so his communication during the process, however we can help during the process, remember this is a guy who's been through quite a bit uh, from, you know, the injury standpoint, personal, family, he's been through a lot. And so, um, you know, the big thing is we, once he went, decided he was going to go in that direction, I don't know why you go into the hurt feelings and all that. Obviously, there's a lot of emotion involved. Uh, we've been through a lot together, um, but there, more than anything, there's a lot of love there. So at the end of the day, uh, I'm happy for him. We're happy for him. We'll be supporting for him. We'll be following him from afar, and this is always a home for him. Is this the new normal, you think, in college basketball? Will you have to, as well as other coaching staffs around the country, particularly in mid-major programs, quote-unquote, are you going to have to get used to the idea of players testing the waters with regard to the transfer portal on a more regular and frequent basis? I think you always have to adjust to the times. You always got to get ahead of the times. And so you have to understand that that's a reality. I mean, I think when you're talking about the the transfers from 500 a year to 700 to 800 last year, and it's already close to 900, and we haven't hit May. And then we're waiting, as you know, about a big decision in terms of one of the biggest decisions the NCAA can make in terms of immediate eligibility for like the, the one-time transfer, uh, the one-time, the sit-out exception or whatever it is. And so if that happens, you know, there are no sit-outs. You know, the graduate transfer and the, the guy who was a sit-one-play-two or sit-one-play-one, whatever that was, it, they're immediately eligible. So I think the consensus is that's going to happen. Uh, it's probably 50-50 on whether that happens this year, and we'll know uh, next month, maybe earlier. And that could just change the game even more. You're talking about a little bit of free agency. So each program has to run their program the right way. Like I said, it used to be guys would leave who didn't play. And then in the last five years, you're talking so many double-digit scorers leaving. And But we have still been ahead of that until Drew. So – I don't know if it's really the new normal, but it's certainly moving in that direction, and we got to get ahead of it. And I think we do a pretty good job, uh, and then we'll have to revisit things if this new rule passes. All right, so you heard Aran Ganab. What was interesting about that didn't necessarily exhibit a huge level of enthusiasm uh, for the potential rule change of the one-year transfer in college sports, uh, but there seemed to be an acceptance on his part. I think his thinking is, hey, maybe I don't love the change, but it certainly appears as though this change is coming. So I better get used to it and I better be prepared to make the necessary adjustments. Which I, I think is a prudent thing, right? Especially as we talk about being a mid-major program. Yeah, coaches are, I, I don't anticipate coaches to love it, right? They, they lose a little bit of control over their programs and the, and the guys that they bring in and how long they're going to stay. But I think the smart ones, the creative ones, even if they don't like it, are going to look at it as an opportunity to revamp right you, you've got to figure out the way to make the best out of this situation whether you like it or not uh and I think it's encouraging that coach Gannat is taking that approach and and looking at it as an opportunity to piece it together figure things out how does he utilize that to make his program better um and I know he's pretty excited about that recruiting class he's bringing in as well uh and, and maybe soon on the on the horizon is also going to be the opportunity to welcome in some transfers perhaps Time to take a break, and then we'll get into our post-game best and worst. Hey, for our listeners on Maui, we are holding out hope that the 18th season of the Maui Flag Football League will take place as scheduled this summer. The MFFL is a youth flag football league for boys and girls ranging in age from 3 to 18, broken up into divisions of seven different age groups representing five districts, Upcountry, Wailuku, Kahului, Kihei, and Lahaina. The goal of the MFFL is to teach the game of football without the worry of violent contact, concussions, or weight cutting. It's all about having fun, being active, and making new friends while reinforcing important values like teamwork, perseverance, and respect for your fellow players and coaches. For more information on the Maui Flag Football League, please call 808-280-7513 or email mauiflagfootball at gmail.com and get signed up. All right, back to the show. All right, time now for the post-game portion of the podcast. Let's get to our best and worst. Jordan, what is your worst for this episode? Yeah, you know, we were talking about college basketball coaches and uh, maybe losing control, taking control with all the new transfer rules and our kids going to be able to make 
money off their name, image, and likeness. I don't know if you saw this earlier today, uh, this being Thursday, the final day of April, but Wake Forest has hired their new basketball coach. I, I didn't know guys were hiring at this point in, of the quarantine, but uh, they, they've hired Steve Forbes, was it East Tennessee State, I believe. But did you see like the promo video they put out on social media? It's like him and I assume the athletics director, they're standing, you know, at least six feet apart in one of the auxiliary practice gyms there on campus in Winston-Salem with masks as is the, the recommended practice by, you know, all the, the government agencies. And he's like, hey, are you, you promised to graduate players? And like, yes. Uh, you know, like, hey, you're going to put another one of those up? And they point to like all the ACC championship banners. It's been a while. Um, up in the rafters there. And he's like, that's what we came here to do. And then it's like, well, you've got the job. And it's like, we welcome, you know, Steve Forbes, the next head coach of Wake Forest basketball. And they cut back to him, and he's just psyched. And he takes his mask off and spikes it onto the hardwood. And I was like, wait, what was that for? It was already one of the corniest introduction videos I've seen in a while. Uh, and then he just spikes the mask, which I feel like is not recommended at all by the powers that be. It's like, we're getting to work or something. It's like, dude, we, I don't think we can get there yet. I mean, I don't know what the North Carolina's doing lifting restrictions or whatever, but it seemed really weird to make it a very clear point that they were wearing masks and standing X amount of feet apart. And then he just spikes the mask at the end after he gets the job. It seemed, um, I wasn't a big fan. It was a bit weird. That's my worst for today. <laughs> yeah. And now the mask is all dirty. Great job there. And by the way, I'm already a little biased against him because um, I love me some Danny Manning, man. And so I'm not over that yet. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, my worst is um, this is a statistic that will absolutely blow your mind. This comes from Cole Kublik uh, of the SEC Network. And he posted this on Twitter. He said, uh, this is inconceivable. And he lists career TD passes to first round picks of various big name quarterbacks. So TD passes, career TD passes to receivers, pass catchers uh, who were first round picks. Drew Brees, for instance, has 104 such passes. Tom Brady, 105. Peyton Manning, his franchises were taking care of a man. 293 touchdown passes to first-round picks. Brett Favre, 127. Aaron Rodgers, by comparison, one. One touchdown pass to a first-round pick. And that was to Mercedes Lewis in 2019. Man. That, that's, just, that's a great statistic. That's just another example of how the Packers haven't quite built – I know he's got some second round, but, like, man, it's just over 15 years, they haven't been able to get one first round. I mean, it could have been a receiver. could have been a tight end. could have been I'm in a almost, trade, too. It could have – yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'd imagine a lot of Tom Brady's ones went to Randy Moss, right, over the course of his career. Right. I'm, I'm pretty surprised, slightly, that – the one TD pass wasn't like to himself where he like threw it off of a defender, got it batted back to him on the two yard line and dove in Marcus Mariota style or something like that. <laughs> um, I'm slightly surprised that the one was somebody else and not actually a TD pass to himself. Yeah, that would count. That would count as a touchdown pass to a first rounder. That's for sure. Uh, all right. What is your best, my man? Yeah, my best. Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, I saw this clip on the jump. Uh, it was Sue Bird and Megan Rapino, who apparently on, Saturday nights have been hosting like an Instagram live session where they basically just drink wine, answer questions from viewers, tell stories. Uh, I haven't seen any of it, but apparently it's been pretty popular. I think a lot of people are obviously familiar with Sue Bird, great point guard, and Megan Rapino, the star, one of these stars for the women's national team, the last couple of World Cup runs uh, on the soccer side. They are a couple. They are partners. Um, and they basically told the story. I don't know how it came up. I don't know if Diana Tarazi tuned in, but apparently – there was a time where she and Dana Tarazi basically just drank Megan Rapino under the table and willfully gloated that it was in UConn basketball players' DNA. And it was almost as if it was part of the recruiting profile that they had to match uh, if they were going to go play basketball at UConn, which I was like, well, I don't know if that, you know, I don't know if it checks out 21 when you come in. I don't know if that's quite how it works, but it sounds like uh, you had to be able to toss some back if you were going to go play hoops in stores, Connecticut with the greats. Uh, and I just thought it was funny that Sue Bird and Dana Tarazi just drank Megan Rapino, who is a world-class athlete uh, under the table. Yeah. I mean, if there is a coach in college basketball who you can imagine has an extensive wine cellar, it's Gino Ariema. Is it not? I mean, come on. <laughs> and so maybe that's part of it too. Uh, what's funny is uh, that really resembles my Saturday nights as well, just without the whole Instagram live thing. 
That's <laughs> that's an idea. Maybe you should start. Yeah, maybe. I drink myself under the table usually on Saturday <laughs> nights. All right, my best is we are recording this on April 30th, and two of the more iconic playoff dunks took place on this date in history. Back in 1991, the famous Michael Jordan dunk, we saw it in the docuseries over Patrick Ewing where he dribbled past John Starks and Charles Oakley. That was in the 91 playoffs. Uh, That was pretty phenomenal. That's one of the iconic dunks. And then you had Sean Kemp, the Lister Blister. That was in 1992 uh, when it was the Sonics taking on the Warriors and Sean Kemp tomahawked it over Alton Lister. Uh, Which dunk was better, Jordan? Boy, impossible to choose. The MJ dunk is ridiculous, right? I, the, the hesitation and then getting it free and then climb the ladder on Ewing. Uh, but it's, it's, it's the Rain Man. That dunk is ridiculous. It's got a great nickname. That's right. Sean Kemp, just the amount of ferocity, the amount of animosity that was packed into that dunk, circumstances surrounding uh, the history between those two guys earlier in the series. And then it's the epitome of just ending somebody, just absolutely crushing their spirit, their soul, uh, soul snatching as the kids like to call it. I mean, everything about that dunk was everything with bad intentions. Uh, And so I am going with the Sean Kemp obliteration of Lister. Yeah, I go with the Lister Blister as well. It was one of the most disrespectful dunks ever because he pointed yes. with both index fingers at him. This came two games after Blister attempted to throw a punch at Sean Kemp. Uh, and so this was sort of vengeance in the making as well. What's amazing about it is uh, when you watch the wide shot angle of that dunk, Sean Kemp gets the ball basically with one foot outside the three-point line, takes one dribble, and then takes off the runway and just tomahawks it. He tucked the ball like a running back when he was driving down the lane and then just cocked it and launched it. Uh, If you watch The Wire, they always use that term, dropping bodies. That was a dropped body right there, courtesy Sean Kemp. Uh, I definitely vote for that one. Uh, all right, well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. Uh, Jordan, been fun, man. Talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot, man. I'm going to go lower the hoop to six feet so I can go recreate that Lister Blister. Yeah, Rain Man style. I'm going to do the same, but I think I got to go five feet. All right, take care, buddy. See you, man.